She was 19, in love, and she wanted her baby. She'd already begun mourning him before I met her. The labor and delivery wards in the largest hospital in southern Puerto Rico no longer pumped out 30 patients at night or 30 patients an hour or whatever grueling birth rate my elders remembered from their time. Sometimes numbers get larger with the telling, but you could expect at least a birth or two an hour over a night shift. The long, dimly lit corridor was packed with small, cubby-like rooms of greenish-blue tile, each large enough for one bed and one chair, almost touching. Sometimes we had so many laboring women we had to stack beds in the hallway, surrounded by thin curtains on stands to make rooms. The third and fourth year medical education in Puerto Rico was immensely superior to that in most of the U.S. at this time because of the hands-on culture, largely lost in a high-cost medical system obsessed with the most extravagant technology and lawsuit payouts. Puttering from room to room, dragging a large gray ultrasound machine after her like C-3PO leading R2-D2, you might have seen me practicing basic sonography. I became good at finding babies' faces to make their mothers smile. After about 30 or 40 of them, I became fairly practiced at measuring fetal biometrics and finding fluid pockets, a skill I later lost instead of improving during medical internship in Texas. Sometimes I would come out of a room and report to a thin, doe-faced OB resident with glasses and long, dark hair who, despite her obvious exhaustion, always wore her lips in a clever smile under kind, thick-lashed eyes. I asked her at one point how she stayed so calm, and she said, Well, I remember that worst comes to worst, the person goes into cardiac arrest and they need CPR. I know CPR. I always know what to do for the worst-case scenario. She showed me my first in-bed speculum exam, and unlike many, many other physicians I would meet through the years, especially in reproductive health, I don't recall ever hearing her say this or that woman shouldn't be allowed to have children. Because you see, in most physicians' minds, a woman's choices are only valid if she's educated or wealthy or making the choice you want her to make. She took a lot of crap from some of the harsher upper-level residents, who tended to throw their substantial weight with haughty flips of the wrist. The bright stars shine brighter in memory once you've waded through fog. Because the residents needed deliveries for their numbers, it became my job to help the nurses measure, bundle clean, and check the newborns before showing them to the mothers. I would also be the one to actually stand by the mother during her contractions and help her push if she did not have family to walk her through it. Many first-time mothers had no idea how contractions worked or when to push or breathe or even what muscles to use. It was a very proud moment for me when my, one mother had to be rushed to cesarean and she pointed at me after our hours together and she said, I want that doctor in my C-section with me. I want you. I assisted with more cesareans in that one month in medical school than I think two years of residency. For an entire month, I did not see the sun, because I woke up to go to work while it was dark and left while it was still dark. It was a lovely month. There were some resource limitations, however. Because of the shortage of midwives who've pired the technique of low-trauma births, or perhaps because of the lack of government willingness to license them, there was a tendency to still perform episiotomies for almost every single birth. That meant towards the end of the birth, the physician would take scissors and cut open a line through the woman's vulva, which then had to be sewn up with lidocaine. Because of the shortage of space and lack of trained nurses, skin-to-skin -skin time after birth was limited, and all the babies were put in one room together for observation under a single resident, instead of staying with their mothers during hospitalization, which is healthier. And finally, because there was a shortage of anesthesiologists on the island, there was no such thing as an epidural. 
Something deep in my intestines freezes or slows, and my fingers stiffen as we come now to her story. Remember, she was nineteen. Whispering physicians conferred in the hallway. IUFD, their dark watchword. The worst news anyone can receive during pregnancy, she received at the worst part. The end. The end, after she'd felt her baby's tiny kicks making little bulges in her belly under her warm palm. After she'd read to him, sung to him, spoken to him, as her ever-present little partner through work and play for nine months. Days before his birth, they told her he was dead. And he was ten pounds. And she had to deliver him vaginally. I remember sitting in class the year before, studying the guidelines from the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, staring in horror at the text. After an IUFD third trimester, the mother has to deliver her dead baby through standard labor, not a cesarean, because a cesarean with a dead baby greatly increases the mother's risk of infection and death. I would rather die, I said in a hushed, hoarse confidence to my friend at the circular library table we shared overlooking the palm trees. I could never do that. The ghost of the theoretical patient haunted me. Here now, the flesh-and-blood reality before me gripped the sheets, sweat gleaming on her forehead. She wore a jaw of determination, eyes of steel. When I sat beside her on the bed to talk about pushing and breathing for her first-time birth, she nodded like a boxer about to enter the ring. Some of the young primips cry and yell before they've had their first contraction. This one had the eyes and silence of a lioness on the hunt. The world was turmoil around her. She was the still point, the eye of her family's hurricane. I think that patient's mother hates that boyfriend. I could tell by the way she spoke when they were in the room, said a short nurse with long yellow hair, gossiping by the workstation as nurses are wont to do. I don't think the patient's mother wants this baby anyway. I didn't know. I thought that was a horrible thing to say about someone's mother. I saw the boyfriend and remember his thin back slouched like a shy question mark and his 19-year-old boy face a small heart of cheeks and pointed chin under a shock of tousled black hair. I saw the mother and only remember a strong voice. I don't know. You never know. I knew when my young heroine needed water, when she needed space, when she had questions, when it was time for her next dose of tightly scheduled narcotic, and when she gripped my hand as her contractions began to draw closer together and the pain became too severe to wait for nurses' schedules. I need something, please. Her smooth girl face streaked with the harsh lines of a woman. Her voice deepened in strain. I ran to the resident and then at her order to the nurses. There's a standing order for pain. She needs more pain medication, please. Minutes passed while the nurses kept talking to each other. Excuse me. I did this often running to the nurses because a patient needed something and their buzzer wasn't heard for one of a million reasons. These people always want more drugs, a nurse would say, or we can't give too many narcotics because of risk to the baby and risk of addiction. Someone else would try to teach me. Yes, yes, I, I know, but no, I said, my knee jittering. This one, this is one whose baby is dead. She's, she's in a lot of pain. A nurse's glance at the clock. We have to wait 30 more minutes by the schedule. Um, yes, ma'am. I'm talking about the standing order for extra medications for severe pain. I breathed, my stomach twisting. Can't we just give her what she needs to forget this is happening, I thought. I knew I'd want as many drugs as it took to safely dissociate. The nurse's casual, unhurried response. Is it really severe, though? What is the number? Yes, it's severe. She's writhing and crying. What's the number, though? 
I ran back and forth several times, each time to find the patient writhing, her groan throaty. Her steel eyes focused far away and then narrowed as she began to wilt. Her grunts became whispers. Please. They're on their way. Let's keep breathing, I said, as something like rage in the base of my throat threatened to choke me. Let's count. Counting calmed her breathing. It lessened the deep lines in her face, and you could see in her eyes the sanity maintained from contraction to contraction. She fought. But you could see that resolve flicker. There's a moment in every woman's birth where suddenly her mind says she cannot do this, and either she tells it no, focused on each moment with breath and grip as she commands nature itself, or it tells her yes, through no shame of her own, and she just can not. Those are the panicked ones you see end in cesarean, or in weeping, drawn-out, third-stage labor, where she just will not push. Because it hurts more to push, you push at the peak of pain, and you just cannot. Her own moment of cannot was approaching. Where the hell are they? I found myself swearing in my mind. Only the nurses were authorized to give out pain medication. I left the room again with a gust of wind behind my white coat, trying to find anyone who would listen. She really is in pain. It's the one with the ten-pound dead baby. Please? Somehow at last, my doe-faced resident had the yellow-haired nurse in the room. My heroine was no longer breathing. She was gasping. She was straining. But it still wasn't time to push, and the resolve in her eyes flickered and flustered wildly like a candle in the gust, and she stared into her labor and realized she would have nothing to show for all this pain. There was no light at the end of the tunnel. There was no reward, no purpose, no meaning, and no baby to this labor. She broke down, sobbing hopelessly. I can't remember that moment without a spasmodic, lip-fluttering burst of gasping tears. And then, finally, when the nurse drew up the syringe of clear fluid, "'Can you verify your name and date of birth as you consent for this pain medication?' the nurse asked. My patient could not answer for the pain. "'Please, please, please,' she groaned. "'Miss, I just need to make sure you consent to this pain medication with your full name and date of birth verbally,' the nurse repeated. Again, the patient could not speak through her agonized cry other than, "'Please. Apparently screaming in pain is not consent for pain medication.' "'Miss, I need your name and date of birth,' she said. "'Her name is right on her wrist,' I said. "'Give her something,' said the mother's mother or the resident. "'Somehow she whispered out her name and her date of birth, "'and after perhaps forty minutes of asking for pain medication "'for her horrible ten-pound dead baby natural labor, she finally got it. "'If sticklers for the rules didn't terrify me before, "'that small interaction was enough to make me hate good girls forever.' That someone would think it was okay to prolong another human being's intense suffering in the name of the rules, to ignore basic mammalian communication, to force someone to fit a specific speech pattern just to protect your ass, just... They can do anything to you in the name of rules. There was a moment after the sob when the pain medication had worn off again, when the girl, the woman, regained control. I don't know exactly when it was, but a moment after the moment of... You cannot. Her eyes focused, her lips pursed, she tensed her back, bore down, told it she would, and just did. If you can control your breathing, you can control your birth. And finally the head began to crown. We wheeled her out of the tiny labor room to the frigid white surgical suite where her baby would be born. We heaved her up out of her gurney into the bed, lifted her feet back in those stirrups, and the upper ear resident suited up. 
The head emerged like a gray, half-deflated balloon, squishing and swollen through the birth canal. Not small and round like a baby's head usually is. The enormous bag of skulls seemed to dwarf the tiny little face. And then the shoulder got stuck. Shoulder dystocia is one of the most feared complications of labor, fatal to both neonate and mother, as the one suffocates to death and the other suffers hemodynamic collapse. The small mercy of this dystocia was that the baby was already dead. The seconds lagged and ticked and dragged as the upper ear resident moved and maneuvered and pulled. And then at last, in a huge blue sterile wrapping, I took from him the limp, floppy, gray body and carried him over to the warmer. His skull pieces floated under my fingers and his swollen bag of head skin like loose, broken puzzle pieces in a water balloon. There was a huge clot in his umbilical cord. Likely that clot caused him severe hydrocephalus. His brain had filled with fluid, his head now almost as big as his torso, and his little skull had blasted apart in there. He was covered with blood, and some of his gray skin had begun to peel off. There was a moment, as I tenderly lay him down, that I knew this could affect me forever, and I could fear this little alien baby, or I could love him. The moment the mind says cannot. No mind. No. With gentle strokes, I rubbed off as much deathly skin as possible, so he looked smooth. We pushed his little head into a hat, and then another little hat to cover the soaked bleeding through the first, and then another hat to contain all the hats and the bulgy head brain, and formed the little head to acute roundness. This was his family's first impression and last goodbye, so with the tenderness of makeup artists, we bundled him in two soft blankets. Yellow hair nurse was there the entire time, with me, talking. And we presented him to his mother, and she held him, exhausted, her hair spread around her in wet rivulets like the goddess of war after climax, breathing and strong. A boy, she said, and something like he was going to be beautiful. She gazed into his little gray sleeping face, gazed and gazed, her jaw soft now, but sad cheeks firm, set, as if she and he knew some certainty none of the rest of us knew in their hello and goodbye. She no longer wore the face of determination, but the face that comes after determination. She was once again the calm in the center of the storm. Around her bed, we bustled, cleaning and moving and sewing or writing, depending on our jobs, and her family wept or spoke or breathed, everything ever in the constant revolving motion of life around the mother staring into death's face with her child. What arrangements do I need to make for his funeral? she asked me. She, practical, while the world around her imploded. There were other people to work for, other things to do, towels to be fetched or notes to write. In a few minutes, on my way back into the room, I heard the yellow-haired nurse by the station talking. I don't know what she was feeling. She was so strangely calm, said the yellow-haired nurse. But you could tell that boy really wanted that baby. I sighed as I rounded the corner, leaving the gossip behind. I passed one of the darkened hallways on my way back to the birthing room. There, in the shadows, the grizzled father, his face wan, his eyes moist, cradled the boy who had gotten his daughter pregnant. And the boy cradled his gray son with tears streaming down his face. And I, in the locker room, no longer needed, wept an incoherent message into my husband's voicemail. 
the baby. I wept, repeating the same words over and over. The little baby. The little baby is dead. If you like this episode of Death and the Doctor, the art of killing a physician slowly, be sure to subscribe to Emergency Exit Podcast wherever you get your pods. This series of short stories chronicles the losses and near misses that our doctor encountered during her first few years of medical practice. listening to this episode of Death and the Doctor. I'm Jen Finelli, the licensed physician voice behind um, the series. Mental health care is very important to me because of the only personal trauma that I have dealt with and because of the impact I've seen on my patients. So if you or a loved one are at risk, um, the phone number for the suicide helpline is 1-800-273-8255. Or for the crisis text line, you can text HOME, that's H-O-M-E, or Hotel Oscar Mike Echo, to 741-741 in the U.S., or 686-868 in Canada. I also went ahead and, along with the Emergency um, Exit Podcast Network, we've gone ahead and affiliated with BetterHelp.com. In these current times, it can be difficult to go out to find a therapist, and a lot of times people's insurance doesn't always cover what they need. There are cheap and affordable uh, therapist options at BetterHelp, and like I always tell my patients, if you need to fire your therapist and pick another one, you always can. You always should take care of picking the therapist that's best for you, but if you would like to take advantage of our 10% offer, um, we do have a special link for you at has offers tracking.betterhelp.com slash s h d y that's has offers tracking.betterhelp.com slash s h d y so that link is also going to be in the description of every episode so one more time in order to get 10 percent off of your teletherapy so that you can take care of yourself effectively um, please go to hasofferstracking.betterhelp.com slash S as in Sierra, H as in Hotel, D as in Delta, and Y as in Yankee. And that's has offers tracking with an S. I really hope that you find that helpful. And if not, do what you need to do to try to find care in the area near you. It's also always a viable option if you have a well-trained chaplain um, or you have a well-trained school counselor sometimes they can get you the help that you need as well. Every single person, whether a counselor or a pastor or a school counselor or a therapist, can sometimes be hit and miss because the evidence shows that the biggest thing that makes a difference for patients actually getting better is if you have a good rapport with the therapist. So if it's not working, get a different one. It's okay. A professional isn't going to be offended. What I like about being able to use betterhelp.com is you have an enormous network of therapists all over the world that you can use to help you out. Um, It is a U.S.-based company. And while I can't give you some kind of insurance referral or anything like that to them, this affiliate link is a great way to both support the show and do what you need to do to make sure that you're healthy to be able to help other people. Thank you very much for listening to the show, and have good adventures. Good adventures.